Welcome to the Carry Forward Podcast. We appreciate you stopping by and joining the conversation to help veterans who suffer from the hidden wounds of combat. Our mission is to help them find purpose, motivation, and direction after military service. We decided enough is enough. It's time to get real and stop sugarcoating things. Many of the unfiltered conversations we have are not easy. Stories are told, emotions run high, and people need help. Mental health is not something to be taken lightly. The Carry Forward team are not qualified to give any professional medical or mental health advice. We are here to lend a listening ear and share our past and present experiences. If you or someone you know needs help, please stop everything you're doing and get them the care they need. Hi, everyone. This is Andy with the Carry Forward Podcast. I'm here with Gary and Will. Today, our episode is in remembrance of those that lost their lives on September 11, 2001. Those attacks 20 years ago changed not only America, but the entire world. Over the past few weeks, we've been collecting stories from family, friends, and fellow veterans. We asked them to tell us what they were doing and how those events affected them. We're focusing the next two episodes on their stories, which are a living history of the people who carried forward after that historic day. We're both honored and grateful to be able to share them with you. Thank you for joining us in remembering the day that impacted us forever. Tuesday, September 11, 2001, began as a sunny day in New York City. A welcome change from the previous night's storms as Hurricane Aaron continued to push further out to sea. New Yorkers were beginning their day like any other Tuesday. Then, at 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into One World Trade Center, the North Tower. Fear and confusion spread through the city while first responders suited up and headed to the crash site. Broadcasters interrupted radio and television shows nationwide. Then, after the horrifying crash, the unthinkable happened. United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into Two World Trade Center, the South Tower. The realization that we were under attack swept across the nation, but it wasn't over. The attackers were not finished. At 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the western side of the Pentagon. As most people were fleeing the stricken buildings, some stayed to help. Police, firefighters, and EMS personnel ran into the buildings to help evacuate as many as they could. During the rescue efforts at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapsed. Minutes later, at 10.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 93 crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, as passengers and crew fought the hijackers and attempted to regain control of the plane. Despite the collapse of the South Tower, rescue efforts continued in the North Tower, until 10.28 a.m. when the North Tower collapsed and America watched in horror. As we reflect on these events, I'd like Will to lead in with his personal memories. Will, would you mind sharing your story with us? Yeah, I was uh, in Michigan. I was at the, I was in Alpena, Michigan at the Alpena Combat Readiness Training Center, which is a 
an international guard base that hosts units from all over the country. And it's a gigantic training facility, essentially, to include different airframes. So we were there on a training mission for our fighters. So they were doing their normal train-ups, spin-ups, you know, flying around all day, causing all kinds of noise in the community. I was posted out as a close boundary sentry on the aircraft parking ramp doing aircraft and flight line security. I just got relieved off of there to go get breakfast at the chow hall. Hearing things spin up on the radio, every I think every radio station probably had a cut in somewhere of kind of news that an aircraft had hit the World Trade Center. And so I drove up to our security control center. They had the news on. It was a replay on one screen, on a split screen, a replay coming and on the left, and then in real time on the right, the smoking, the smoke coming from the tower, everybody was pretty well confused. I like, what in the heck just happened here? Every news station was kind of guessing at what just happened or what could have just taken place. You know, my initial reaction was, I've never seen anything like this before. I bet you the, the flight crew or the pilot had a heart attack and just like was done. It was gone, like a widowmaker heart attack or whatever they call them. And the plane got away from the flight crew and here we go. This is what happened. And then obviously we know what else happened after that. But I'm watching the replay on the left side of the screen and then in real time when the second one came. My initial reaction was, what in the actual hell is going on here? I don't know. It, it was... It was strange. I was, I was only in the military at that point for, God, a year. Yeah, I mean, I was a pre nine eleven baby. I had, had just put on, uh, I just put on E three. It was like nothing I've ever experienced in my whole life. Obviously, you know, you hear about terrorism, like the USS Cole, for example, or the embassy bombings and things like that. Turns out, same assholes are the ones who, uh, you know, hatched this one too. At no point did I ever think and my whole life would I see something like that happen here in the United States. So Gary, I want you to tell me a little bit about where were you and what were you doing when that first plane crashed into the North Tower? So I was a E5 in the 82nd. I was actually in the ops cell for HHC company and I was sitting in my office. I was listening to a radio show. I can't remember who it was. It was kind of like a comedic morning radio show. They'd just gotten back in from PT and I was sitting there and radio was on and I just heard something in passing that you know hey a plane had hit the World Trade Center so they were they were kind of breaking in and talking about it didn't really think anything of it you know because there was you know at one time that the that small plane hit the World Trade Center before so and I thought kind of similar things that Will was thinking you know like what is this like did it just go off course was it cloudy what happened and you know you really didn't think anything about it and then a few minutes later they uh, broke back in again the radio hosts and they said we are not newscasters but a second airplane hit the World Trade Center and we are jumping off the air right now because the news needs to get in. And so they basically canceled, they, they shut their show down. At that point, I stepped out of my office and I can remember First Sergeant standing there and he was just kind of looking at me like, what? And I said, did you hear that two, two planes just hit the World Trade Center? And at that time, you know, there were no cell phones or anything like that and email was not really a real heavy thing. But within a matter of minutes, the entire battalion had known what was going on i mean it was that fast so i remember getting dressed real fast getting in uniform real quick trying to figure out you know what are we doing you know first aren't was like hey let me let me just go to the head shed and figure out what's up ran up top side we were all trying to figure out what was going on and i ran up to the i remember running up to the barracks and one of my buddies had a big screen tv you know one of those big old giant thick box set big screen tvs 
you know, old school ones. And there had to have been 20 or 30 of us piled into his room and we saw it and they were just replaying at that point. They were just replaying what had happened. And I can remember very distinctly, we all kind of stopped and looked at each other and had this like sinking feeling and you could hear it. And, and several of us, almost as if we were just in the same skin, we're all like, those buildings are about to fall down. We were all able to verbalize that. And it was just, just a weird, just a weird feeling. So then we ended up getting back down to the company area. Fort Bragg kind of went into a panic mode at that moment. So it was just like everybody locked down every intersection, start checking ID cards. Cause at that point it was like, Oh crap, this is an attack. But I can remember we were all kind of rallying and trying to figure out where we were going to go stage and, you know, set up all these random checkpoints and then the Pentagon was hit, and that was it. After that, it was like every single one of us were like, we're at war, boys. There's no question about this now that we're at war. And we ended up punching out, and I was, you know, standing out there stopping everybody. We were, everybody and their brother probably went through a thousand ID card checkpoints during those moments. It wasn't until, uh, I want to say, lunchtime that we were able to get back to the TV and see what was going on. And then, you know, the towers had already fallen. And, and then all I can remember was just going home that night and just, grabbing my kiddos and just this is it man we're into something here that was pretty much how that day went for me you know it was all such a blur and it, you know 20 years ago you, you think you would remember every little detail intimate detail but the only real intimate details I remember are, are just scenes from impacts and things like that but yeah that was pretty much the day for me what about you I had worked through the weekend and through Monday and so Tuesday was a day off for me. And my friend Mike, he and I had been in uh, had been in Ranger Battalion together. This was ten months after I left. No, nine months after I'd left. And so he calls me. He says, "Andy, you got to go turn on the TV. A plane has flown into one of the World Trade Center buildings." And my first thought was going back to a memory of a small single engine like Cessna type plane that had flown into some sort of a bank building years prior. And I thought, oh, wow, well, some other knucklehead just just did the same kind of thing. Got the TV turned on and, and saw the replay of what had happened, saw the, the live shots of the building as the smoke is pouring out of it, and it was surreal. I was trying to process it and put it into some sort of a framework that would make sense in my own mind, and I couldn't. It just didn't make any sense because clearly this was not somebody just making a simple mistake. I hadn't leapt to the conclusion at that point that, or maybe I hadn't mentally accepted at that point, that this was intentional. I was still trying to process how this could have happened by accident. I was very confused. Very confused. And so then at 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower, and I was in front of the TV, and I watched that happen live. At that point, it was shocking, but it was also obvious to me, now we have two of these incidents. I knew it was intentional, and I knew that everything just changed. I didn't at the time appreciate how much it was going to change, because I'd spent my first six years in 3rd Ranger Battalion, and every time there was a terrorist attack... We would get spun up, and we were ready to go, and then nothing would happen. We would get stood down again. Now that I wasn't there anymore, and I saw this happen, I thought, this has got to be it. And ultimately, it was. 
We appreciate everyone who sent in their stories. Now, what's interesting about these stories is there are some people who have never served in the military and people who have served in the military and have closely served with Andy, myself, and Will that have shared their stories. And I'm going to read one from uh, Dina Kay. She said that she was at home. She was actually doing laundry that day. She had the TV on in the background. She remembers the volume being high enough to hear as she moved around the house. She heard a news break. They were announcing that there were some bombings. And, you know, that kind of fits the confusion of what was going on in the, when all this was, was happening. Immediately, she had thought to herself, oh, how awful. And then went about her, her chores and finishing up her housework. And she didn't think that it was really that important at the moment. And it didn't just it didn't register at the time. But after about an hour or so, she had a friend who had called her on the phone. And that friend was crying and had told her what had happened. And then another friend called her. It wasn't until that second phone call talking to her friends that she realized that, wow, this is very, very real. In the beginning, she couldn't watch much of the news because of the details and how devastating it was. Dina also says that she had a very hard time sleeping that night after that event and seeing what she saw on the news you know I can remember sitting there when I watched it initially I can remember you know there was like a lot of helicopters and stuff just all over the place so there was a lot of footage and confusion and I you know like Dina had said she had heard of, you know that it may have been a bombing you know and there was there was that massive confusion I don't want to say this is lucky I'm glad that there were enough things going on around the city at that time that that all was captured. It very well could have been not captured. The city could have been quiet, could have been no footage of any of this. I appreciate everybody that was there, and I can only imagine what it, would like, what it was like for those people to be there and actually capture that stuff so the world could see it. That's interesting to me too, Gary, as you, as you say that, because in today's day and age, folks are quick to, no matter what's going on, grab their cell phone first and not render aid or not help somebody out or not intervene. It's hard to believe that people even had the thought to record anything they were seeing at that point in time because cell phones were pretty pretty stinking new back then. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I'm I'm just guessing that most of the footage that you're seeing was like people who were already recording something anyway with you know their old school point and shoot handheld camcorders because I don't know if cell phones had good enough anything at that point in time other than to take a still photograph uh, a still grainy photograph at that point in time it's amazing to me how everything has kind of shifted now to where the people the news people who may be recording a spot for you know a cbs or an nbc you know man on the street interview or something like that were able to catch those things mm-hmm. and now makes you wonder what if that were to happen today what would people do would it be fifty thousand cell phone videos from every single angle all the way around that thing just as an aside to what we were talking about it's amazing that we even seen any footage of it 20 years ago right given that we didn't have the things that we have now uh to capture that so you're talking about the cell phones being very limited at the time i wasn't even able to call and talk to my family or anything at that time and then you know like dina was saying she was getting phone calls probably on a landline and that's just how people communicated you know it was calling people hey this is what's going on because nobody was able to snap a photo send a photo or snap a video and send a video so you're right so the the communication was all word of mouth and then uh, among Mm -hmm. that word of mouth you know there was a a lot of confusion and whatnot so the the only source of trusted information was the the news the news outlets and i can remember seeing 10 or 15 helicopters in the air. All news sources were trying to swarm the area and get as much information out as as humanly possible. I want to jump in here real quick with a story from Jake. 
background on this is that I've known Jake for quite a while. My first team, he was he was there when I got there. I consider him to be a friend and a mentor, and he was also one of the one of the guys in that initial push into Afghanistan. And what he wrote here, he said he was serving in the 2nd Battalion, 5th Special Forces Group Signal Detachment as the detachment sergeant, the, the non-commissioned officer in charge. They had finished morning PT, and they were sitting in the, the old 5th Group dining facility, the Desert Inn, and the battalion commander and the EXO were in there with them also. And the news was on a TV in there. And so they saw the first plane flying into the North Tower. The first thing that they said was, wow, that those are some really impressive effects. Those are some great special effects. Because they didn't realize in that moment that it was real. He said the news initially stated that it was a freak accident that took place. And then they were still sitting there when the second plane flew into the South Tower. We all looked at each other silently and took off to what were to be the first few steps that would change the dynamics of the rest of our lives. He said they realized that it was no accident. He talks a little bit here about this continuous disbelief. This is the struggling of human beings to understand something that is hugely important, hugely impactful, that they just don't have a frame of reference for yet. It felt as if we were knocked down onto our knees. He talks about the anger, the disbelief, the despair, coupled at the same time with sorrow for the families of the people who lost their lives. After that, the anger grew every day as events and intelligence were released. So as they learned more about what had happened, who had done it, they just got angrier. Now, mind you, he's one of those guys that immediately went into preparing for infiltration into Afghanistan. Okay, so this next story is coming from Jason, also a member of 5th Special Forces Group at the time. He was recovering from ankle surgery that he had to repair a torn ligament that he had gotten during training. He was in hazmat school at the time. They got the news that a plane had hit Tower 1, and they were all sitting around, and they were watching, they got to a TV, they were watching as the second plane hit, and the realization that this was an actual attack. He said that he went out to his truck, got a pair of tin snips, and cut his cast off. Went to the PX, bought a pair of boots. Three days later, he said he went into isolation, which is where Special Forces does their planning, Landed on Bagram on 26 October of 2001. That wasn't an easy landing either. That was a combat landing. Correct. That is a very powerful story, and we appreciate you sharing that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I wanted to read one from Corey. Corey says he was at Fort Campbell with the 1st of the 502nd Infantry, 101st Airborne Air Assault, when the events of 9-11 happened. Specifically, Corey was out in the field that day with half of the platoon training new officers how to do air assault operations. Things like loading onto the aircraft, how to properly do a sling load. They'd gotten the call from the company that they needed to immediately stop what they were doing and get back to the company area as fast as they could 
to get bags ready because there was an attack on the U.S. We didn't know how, when, or where, or the extent of it, so they got their butts back here as soon as possible. When I got back to the company area, they were briefed uh, a little bit more on what happened and what they needed to be packing bags for. They all sat there amongst each other, like family, watching the television and the things that unfolded, and it looked like something that was out of a movie. There are rumors that because of the division we were in, it was highly possible that they would be sent within days or weeks. Corey goes on to say that he wasn't scared, but he was angry, and it was shock and disbelief. Greatest country in the world just got hit in the way it did. He remembers wanting so badly to get into the fight and do damage to the people who did this. It's what they trained for for the last two years, and finally they thought that they were going to get into it and get and get to use their training. I said the 101st did go in within weeks, just not the 502nd. Instead, it was the 187th Infantry sent in with guys from 5th Group as support to what they, their operations were doing. There's a theme amongst all of these people that have sent in some of their initial reactions to questions that we had posed to them, which was a lot of shock and disbelief that rapidly turns to anger, emotion, and then wanting to jock up and go get some. So with the military responses to these questions, there's a pretty common thread, which they were mm-hmm. doing the job, they were training, involved in right. something, they hear, the, they hear it or they see it, and immediately what do they do? They go and they get ready to go to war because they know that that's what they're there for. And there's nobody that hesitated. No one that I'm aware of hesitated. Right. It's that in case of emergency break glass type of response where it's, uh, you know, there's an emergency going on. Go unleash the beast. Exactly. So one really unique thing that we have here is we have a full production studio and we're able to do these types of things. And it just so happens that Mo is here and she works with us day in and day out for the last, what, three years? Three years. Your dad was in the military, right? Yes, he was uh, in the military for about 20 years. Awesome. Your mom never served, right? No. Why don't you share your dad's story and your mom's story since you're here? It's very unique that you're able able to do this. Okay. Both my parents were in a Ansbach, Germany at the time, and he just finished a 24-hour shift, and he was getting ready to shower and just wind down for the day when the video footage came up from the event happening, and he thought it was a movie trailer. And then when it hit him, that's when he got my mom on the phone, called his brigade, and was like, we're about to go to war. And then he took my mom to the post exchange to get diapers and formula because it was about to get real crazy. They were told to bring anything American affiliated inside for the safety purposes because we were not living on post at that time. We were in military housing off base. And when it came to how he was feeling, he's, I didn't know this until I submitted the questions to him. But my dad said that he was pissed but extremely pumped at the same time, which is kind of confusing. But then it dawned on me because that's what he joined the army for was to protect, serve and protect his country. And when it came to his personal path in life, he said that it was the first time he would get to see war and felt like he was actually contributing to the service that he volunteered for. And his words exactly, I felt better to know I was using my skills in real time instead of just training. What about your mom? I know she shared a story. Oh yeah. That one actually gave me more goosebumps than knowing my dad's because I never really got to talk to them about that until just recently. So my mom, she says that she remembers the good old combination, like everybody else does, of fear, shock, and sadness. She just had my brother two weeks before this happened. She remembers sitting there on the couch with my dad, 
watching it happen while on the phone with my grandmother. That's when it hit her that they need to go buy some odds and ends from the store because they knew what was coming and everything was going to be bought out. The next day, they said that that's when the patrol cars were coming around, making sure people were putting up their American flags and limit the outings while in Ansbach. And with the cold weather coming, that's when the community, as Americans started giving out uh, coffee to the patrol cars and warm dinners and all this other stuff because people were constantly working more than they were already originally. She knew that my dad's next deployment to Saudi invoked a deeper fear and uncertainty when she found out about all of that. So it was interesting. You guys were in Germany, so it was a different take than what it was here in the States. Your family got to experience it a little bit differently, but it's interesting to hear that they wanted to pull down the American flags just to, and it wasn't anything to be disrespectful. It was more of a protection of American service members and just American people over overseas. Now, you told me before that you were, what, three years old? About two or three, yeah. You were about two or three years old, and you have some slight memories. Why don't you share your, share your memories a little bit? I remember sitting in front of the TV, in front of the sofa, playing with my toys when I hear my mom gasp. I remember seeing my dad get up, and then my mom get up, and like they just kind of held each other for a second while watching that, and like, that's when it hit my dad. He's like, I need to call my team. We're about to do what we were meant to do. It's no longer training. It's the real thing. So I kind of remember that, and I remember my brother crying because he's a newborn at this point. You know, the days after were kind of a little hectic. Most people don't remember what they were doing when they were two or three, but this was enough of an event that you're able to piece some of it together. Oh, yeah. Because you don't remember anything before 9-11. You're all post 9-11. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with us. Of course. I thought it was fitting that, you know, read through and kind of talk a little bit about your experience with your parents and... Their experiences. Unique. So Mike Groover was out on the EIB lanes, and for anybody who doesn't know, it's the expert infantryman's badge. So basically what it is is a real quick round robin. You run around, you do all these infantry tasks to earn earn a badge, basically. And there's a couple of weeks' worth of train-up, um, and then you go through the test, and if you succeed through the test, you get the, you get the expert infantryman's badge. So that was going on uh, for our battalion at the time, and he was out there on the – on the training lanes, when the aircraft hit the towers, he was going up to the radio station. One of the stations is you got to be able to put a radio together and put it into action and be able to talk on it and communicate and all that other stuff. Well, it just so happened that that station that he was going up to, the cadre had already turned it over to an FM channel, and they were able to basically listen to the news on this military radio at the EIB lane. So that was his first real exposure to what was going on and he'd been passing people on the on the lanes, and people had kind of been talking about it. They were coming from the station, and they were hearing it. So out in the middle of the field, they're listening to this go on on this on a military radio. Fifteen minutes later, he was saying that the senior leadership started pulling everybody out because the second aircraft had hit. You guys need to start heading back to the barracks. And Mike says he remembers thinking to himself, "What the fuck's happening?" And you're hearing the initial reports. You know there was all, all that confusion, a lot of things going on, and so he just kept asking himself, "What is happening?" started becoming more and more real to him when they physically came down and said, hey, shut everything down. I mean, you, you guys got to realize, like, this is, like, the most important thing. EIB is, like, the most important thing to an infantry battalion when you're not actually fighting a war. <laughs> so for it to get shut down, this has to be pretty real. Mike says that later in the morning when they were all sitting around the rec room watching the playbacks, 
of the planes hitting, he remembers thinking to himself, this is an attack and we're going to go fuck somebody up. He was in the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment at the time, so he fully expected that it would be a an airborne infiltration. You know, this we had trained for it. And he was thinking to himself that this is going to be, you know, this is going to be like World War II. We're going to end up jumping in somewhere. He said that, you know, leading up to that, it was a waiting game. So they ended up staying at home station for a little while, continuing to guard the post. And he started getting into the, you know, the mindset of, hey, we need to, we need to really start getting into this fight. And of course, everybody was getting anxious about it. And eventually, over time, they did get into the fight. Since we had Mo step in and, and talk about her perspective and how she saw things with her family, watching her parents as, as they were experiencing this, it makes me think of my own family and some of the stories that I've, that I've gotten from them pertaining to this. Jen told me that uh, she was in her second year of optometry school in her ocular disease class. Her professor had the big white screen up in front, and she had just sat down and watched a second plane come across the sky and hit the second tower. Her professor said, in light of what's happening, diabetes doesn't seem so important, and dismissed everyone. She spent the rest of the entire day on the phone crying and, and watching the news with her best friend. She says, I felt a complex array of emotions, confusion, lack of understanding, fear for my closest family and military friends, and what that meant for them. And ultimately, finally, such a sense of patriotism and pride as the country united and came together as one for a short time. As I read through that and I, and I have listened to the other stories, there are a couple trends that some are obvious, some are, I guess, expected. Some of them kind of surprise me a little bit. So the things that, that I've seen as a common thread I kind of expect that I am familiar with is everyone talking about these, the emotional side of it and being confused. Confusion is almost universal in these stories. The part that has kind of surprised me a little bit, because I had never thought about this, this is not part of what went through my mind, were the people that said that they thought that it was special effects for a movie. We've heard that a few times throughout these stories. I just find that part to be really really kind of interesting and that goes back to people trying to process what they're seeing and put it into a box of understanding and typically when you see something that is that disastrous it is in the context of a movie because we don't really see these things in real life on a regular basis to be able to process it it has to go into the realm of fiction so the next one that i want to talk about here is my brother. At the time, Herb was traveling around doing his IT thing and spent a lot of time flying. And I found out after the fact that he was actually in the Atlanta airport waiting to get on an airplane when the news came on. And he was traveling with another guy that he had worked with. They watched the news of the impact they saw the second impact, and he said they shut off all of the all of the televisions throughout the entire airport. 
people were just really, some were in a state of shock and some were in a state of panic. He and his traveling partner looked at each other and they were like, we need to get a rental car. So as they were rushing to get towards where the rental cars are, his friend, you know, this is back before cell phones were, were super common like they are now, but he had a cell phone, he called, he booked a rental car for them, and it was the last rental car at the airport. And Herb told me that he had to drive all the way from Atlanta to home several hours. And he said this guy who, you know, who had just had the presence of mind to make that call and get it done and be productive in that moment during the drive, he just kind of shut down completely and couldn't participate in that at all. And so then Herb ended up driving the entire way back. I'm not surprised by that reaction. There were a lot of people that, because this was such a huge, overwhelming event, that they were struggling to get through to make sense of it and continue on with their lives and continue to participate in daily life. It's powerful to hear the stories coming from our family members, knowing what we did for a living and then hearing their their take on it. It's always... I think it's more difficult sometimes to hear their stories than it is to hear our own stories because we knew what we were going to get ourselves into. We knew what we were doing. We knew where we were going, but they didn't. Yeah, I wanted to share uh, a story from Jimmy Adams, a guy that's real good friends uh, with Tom, and I know him, hell of a good guy. Uh, Jimmy says he was flying on a C-17 on his way from Hereford Air Force Base on his way to Tuzla, Bosnia. He was assigned to JSOC at the time and was prepping to head over on a training exercise, uh, which was actually a cover for one of the Ranger regiments to conduct a mission. So his radio talk comes over the bird, and in true fashion, the telephone game uh, started, and the message was altered, or it seemed as if the message was altered on its way across to the bird, because by the time he heard it, the message said, something happened in New York, maybe a plane crash into a building. Must have seemed a little bit far-fetched. So upon landing, one of the KBR guys who was working on the airfield stopped Jimmy and asked if he knew what was going on, and he didn't. And the guy replied, uh, go find a TV now. A, a bunch of the guys from the airplane found an MWR room with some TVs and immediately started seeing you know, the images of the towers being hit. And Jimmy says that because of being in in and out of a skiffs and at JSOC and uh, seeing the FBI most wanted posters, he just had this sinking feeling. And and of course, the embassy bombings in Africa, Jimmy just had a sinking feeling that this was Osama bin Laden. Said so he noticed a kid on guard outside of the outside of the building, and uh, he had an initial thought that okay, I know what's going on. Everybody needs to know what's going on, and it happened to be pouring down rain outside so he went outside to the to the young private that was on the guard uh, on guard duty and told him get inside there and uh get dry and go see what's happening on the news and uh the kid was reluctant reluctant to abandon his post and uh jimmy said damn it i outrank you give me your gore-tex jacket and get in there so after four days of being on the ground there due to flight delays because of bad weather uh, they finally got off and headed back home. His initial feelings of shock and awe and upset fall in line with everything we've been talking about today. And uh, and he also said he just left 2nd Ranger Battalion, and they were about to go get some, and he wasn't there anymore. 
So selfishly it upset him in that regard. 9-11 changed his life. Planned on doing six years and then getting out of the Army, and at that point couldn't re-enlist fast enough. At that point in time in his career, he was at fifth group. He had just recently dropped his package to go try out for special mission unit. The second that happened, he mentally shredded his packet for that because he knew that SF and ultimately fifth group was going to be the place that was going to make the difference on this new battlefield. So that's a little bit from uh, our friend Jimmy. He served right there and with you guys, you know, at fifth groups, hell of a good human being and hell of an American. So I completely understand his perspective on having something that massive happen shortly after leaving a Ranger Battalion. Because like Mm -hmm. I said, I was about nine months out of 375. Um, I was about two months post-surgery after some orthopedic surgery and and would have been absolutely useless at that point anyways. I also found out that uh, one of the guys from my squad, (laughs) rather entertaining young fellow, had... uh, had broken his leg, if I remember correctly. And he was in a cast when all this happened. And this is yet another one of those guys that went in there and and cut off his own cast and was like, I'm going, Sarn. (laughs) All right, our good friend and good friend of the show, Kelly, sent us her perspective and her experiences of what happened and the impact there. And the first thing she leads in with was, I was a brand spanking new army wife. So this is the perspective of a woman that is not used to this life and the biggest event of our lifetimes is about to happen. So her husband at the time had enlisted in the army on the same day that President George W. Bush was inaugurated. He had enlisted as 11 Bravo, so for those of you that don't know the the military occupational specialties, that's an infantryman. Those are the guys that are on the ground that, that handle the bulk of the fighting. And they were down at Fort Benning. He was awaiting a cycle into ranger school in early September. And then early Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001, she said she woke up early for a doctor's appointment. She doesn't... (laughs) She said, I do not like hearing just talking on the radio. So she was driving to her appointment. She was continuously changing the channels, trying to find music. When she finally stopped channel surfing long enough to hear what was going on, she heard that the first plane had hit the North Tower. She writes, I was in disbelief, but I truly thought that it was an accident. I got to the doctor's office. We were all quiet, staring at the TV. And moments later, on live television, we watched another plane flying low. I turned to the guy next to me as the plane passed the Empire State Building. I said, OMG, this isn't an accident. And the second tower was hit. 
She says that she raced home and waited by the phone in hopes to hear from her husband, and she was glued to the television the entire time. She called her mom, who was a supervisor for the parish school system, and her mom had told her that they had to lock down all the schools. The phone rang a little bit later, and her husband had called, and he said that everyone that was waiting on that next class were all being sent to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. She said, I told him he needed to turn on a TV, that the world was falling apart, and we were not going anywhere. I hung up on him multiple times. The fourth time he called, he said, we have to be at Fort Campbell by midnight tomorrow night. They received orders for Fort Campbell, Kentucky on 11 September 2001, arrived 12 September 2001. The entire drive from Fort Benning to Fort Campbell was silent. No music played on the radio, just talk. We arrived as the sun was setting. Multiple Humvees with 50 caliber machine guns and soldiers posted along the entire fence line. The lines to get on the post were an eight-hour wait. There was concertina wire everywhere, in front of every building, and around everything. And she says, as a brand new army wife, I was terrified. I can only imagine being a brand new spouse and that happening. You don't know anything about the military at that point. You don't know, you don't know what, you, you kind of have an idea of what you're going to get yourself into. But nothing makes it more apparent than those attacks. And being told that you have to go to Fort Campbell tomorrow. You have to report in tomorrow. So for the listeners that don't have a background in the military, you get orders months in advance. You have to clear the post. There's a lot of processing that goes in, moving of household goods, all of that stuff. Usually you know about a year out. From, from, notification, from notification to actual reporting in, mm-hmm. yes. I'd like to share a story here from Phil Cook, who's a good friend of ours, and he's been doing a lot of good things. Real big into the ruck marching and ruck marching for charity after his service, and he's dealt with a lot in his his military career, and we really appreciate everything that Phil's doing. He shares with us that he was finishing up AIT at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. He said his drill sergeant came running in and said a plane had hit the towers. After that, he had run over and turned on the TV to the news, and shortly after what he saw was the second plane hitting the towers. After that, they had put the entire base on lockdown. All traffic, mail, and phones were locked down as well. 24 hours later, they were able to use the phones to call home and check in with their families. Phil shares that in the following weeks, he can remember everything was just so quiet. No planes flying in the air, and security just being beefed up everywhere, and people just numb. He says as he stood there and watched the events unfold on TV, he was totally motionless and in shock as people were desperately trying to escape the towers and falling to their deaths on national TV. Phil expresses that he knew that it was a tragic day for America, and now that the terrorists had attacked the Twin Towers that we were in shock and everybody was pissed. All he wanted to do was go help in any way that he could, and his wish was granted. He ended up spending three months on guard duty at Ground Zero. He got to see everything from firsthand, all the rescue efforts, and he said it was extremely humbling every single day that he was there. To see all the trucks in and out, clearing out the steel and the concrete day in and day out seemed like it would never end. As a member in the service, to not only watch it on TV, but to be there at Ground Zero afterward, 
and know that we would be reacting and going after the ones responsible. For him, it only made being in the service even more meaningful. He knows that in order for us to keep this from happening again on our soil, we have to take the fight to their home and keep the enemy at bay to keep our families safe and keep from terrorists attacking us again. Phil's expressed that he's damn proud for deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times to help do his part in keeping America safe. Phil, we appreciate you sharing your story, and we can only imagine what it was like being at Ground Zero when all of the cleanup effort and the rescue efforts were happening. And for three months, brother, that's, that is one tough, tough mission, and we thank you for that. Throughout the rest of the day, smoke continued to rise from what would later be dubbed Ground Zero. It was so heavy that it was visible from weather satellites as the wind pushed it south along the coast. As the sun set over the crash sites on September 11, 2001, 2,977 lives were lost. and the lives of over 280 million Americans were changed forever. Each one of them had a story to tell, and we appreciate that you have taken the time to listen to the few we have compiled for you. We will never forget. Thanks for listening. And please join us for the second part of our 9-11 Memorial Podcast, Carry Forward.